Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Life exists only for a short while, and time demands its toll. The toll of time. This program features the work of 2023 writer Stephen Reed Griggs. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator Priscilla Long, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. was the first time you started playing music? Well, I was introduced to making music in fifth grade in our public schools. Uh, they had a really strong instrumental music program, and there was a wonderful teacher, uh, Mrs. Law. I can't remember her first name, but and, and there was a feeder system th- from elementary school through junior high school through high school, and the local instrument retailers worked to have like a petting zoo for instruments so people could try out instruments. And and I went to one of those and uh, the line for the trumpet was really long. (laughs) Everyone was there in the gym uh, trying to play the trumpet. And uh, there was no one over by the woodwinds, the clarinet and saxophone. So me being slightly more introverted and shy, I went there. <laughs> and, <laughs> what a great... Uh, yeah, yeah. What a great accident. <laughs> a great, happy accident. Well, you know, brass instrument is really physically demanding um, mm. to get your lips to vibrate at different frequencies and to support that with air. That's a, that, that's a really um, muscular thing. And it's difficult to not only to do as a small person, just trying to figure out what muscles can do, but as you age, it's also extremely challenging to maintain the physical musculature needed to be a brass player. So um, saxophone is pretty forgiving. It's pretty easy. It's, to, it's pretty easy to get a sound if your, if your equipment is average. <laughs> so, so my... One of my teachers said, uh, yeah, saxophone's very easy to get a sound. It's hard to get a good sound, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> well, that comes later. <laughs> that comes later, yes. So that was my first, uh, you know, uh, honking and making a sound bigger than myself. I, I live across the street from an elementary school, and so occasionally after school I hear, you know, a trombone or somebody blaring and I go oh yeah I remember that how fun it was to just make us make a big sound so um, that's great yeah and so and what about writing the writing part writing uh, I never I didn't enjoy it there was a time in college when I there was a mandatory English credit that I needed to get my music degree and um, so I took the class I wasn't excited about, but I had to check it off the list. But um, 
It was in that class that the teacher pointed out how the same words in different orders could have lots of different impacts. And the, the opening word and the closing word and um, how, you, how you could reorder things in phrases, I, that appealed to my puzzle-making part of my brain. And, and one of the things I really appreciate about your approach to words and teaching it, it that where you, you, you create word traps and things like that, to, where words become these physical playthings. Um, Just the words themselves, you know, yes. objects. Yeah, yeah. And, that, yeah. and that combining them in different sentences does different things. Um, you, <laughs> it evokes different responses in when you read them and when you say them. And so um, that piqued my curiosity. I, I didn't really have a, a story to work with at that time to employ the words, but I started to appreciate, oh, wow, there's this craft that really can be honed and in the hands of a skilled wordsmith, <laughs> different things happen. And uh, my father, when he retired, he kind of, he had left his, the domain of his scientific publications and research. He would have a stack of classics literature by his, his reading chair and would be just reading, reading, reading all the time. He would read me some descriptive passages and and uh, I could, there was just a reverie in his voice about the sound of the description. And, and so he really worked in his retirement to read voraciously and he would underline things and highlight things. I still have some of his books. So it's, it's, it's interesting. He was interacting with the page. It wasn't a passive thing. He was, he was seeking connections and he he loved to be reading multiple books at the same time and kind of say oh well, hey these <laughs> these two things um, are are actually in dialogue so mm -hmm. so i think I, uh, I i had appreciation for that and it wasn't until 2010 when i finally started to look away from my career in data processing and computers and i I decided I wanted to learn how to write as an adult, <laughs> um, not as a rudimentary thing, but um, that I wanted to be wanted able to be a real writer. <laughs> well, I wanted to tell stories, yeah. and and so I went into the certificate program at the University of Washington for narrative nonfiction, and mm -hmm. so that was great. Um, yeah, and you're such an excellent writer. Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, and it's well, I shouldn't say it's amazing because you started so late, <laughs> but you you came to it with a lot to give to it. And so, what are your goals in terms of getting the work out into the world? Well, I guess I mean the writing goals because I you already get your music out into the world. So, well, it's it's a related thing, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and. I think goals of getting things out into the world, that over my life as a musician and writer, I'm, I, I, I keep evolving what that means. You know, when I was younger, it was really important to be, to court fame and to be some sort of imagined elevation in the eyes of an anonymous person. As I get older, it's not that I want 
just anybody to have experienced the work. It's certain people. <laughs> it matters to me that, you know, there are certain people where I want that person to have to read my work or to hear my music. And for example, uh, a, a famous bass player named Reggie Workman, who's in New York and he performed with John Coltrane, he became familiar with my work and called me up one day. And so that... <laughs> that was it. That's, that's the kind of fame I want where someone that I consider to be, uh, that I look up to a lot and respect, if they notice my work, that's, that's the getting out in the world that I want. And so then it becomes really, well, what relationships do I have with the people that I respect? And I need to invest the time and the love to establish and nurture those relationships. That's what's the most important thing. It's not a goal of something I create attaining something. It's more, you know, how deep are my relationships? And that, to me, is now the focus. So, so the, the work is kind of a byproduct of that relationship work and the, the kind of the things that, get that, uh, that I find vital in that relationship. For example, the piece I just wrote about the Seattle Jazz Fellowship and Julian Priester. I, am, I respect Julian's life and his generosity of sharing his story. And that's, that's a beautiful piece too, yeah. That's a lovely piece, yeah. That, that's important to me. And so trying to get that on the page and then, you know, I have had some people respond to me and say, you know, I usually don't read X, but... Wow! Thank mm -hmm. you for writing that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm finding that relationships and story are the what I'm after. And mm -hmm. um, as far as getting things out into the world, I'm really grateful to have platforms to do that. Um, I'm seeking more opportunities to do that. Um, but in the end, it's it's the. <laughs> All I've got is the story that I that I can tell or that I know and that's that's what I want to pursue. Now we'll hear a selection from Stephen's live reading. Time beautified is music. Time beautified is music, suggested musicologist Isaac Rice in the late 1800s. Time and beauty weave a sound with unity and continuity, euphony. Music, ephemeral, evanescent, fleeting, fugacious, an invisible field of feelings like gravity, magnetism, Quantum mechanics and morphogenetics, can it last? How long? Can I make it last longer? First, consider the quantifiable. A flute 
made of bare bone found in a cave was crafted 60,000 years ago. A 4,000-year-old Sumerian clay tablet contained music notation. A marble column in Turkey from the first century AD marked a woman's grave with an inscription of musical notation and lyrics that read, while you live, shine. Have no grief at all. Life exists only for a short while and time demands its toll. The toll of time. There was a time when the sound of a bell could be heard only when struck and then remembered silently until on Monday, January 26, 1857, a Parisian named Edouard Leon Scott cleverly asked in a design application to the French Academy, and I quote, can it be hoped that the day is near when the musical phrase escaped from the singer's lips will be written by itself and as if without the musician's knowledge on a docile paper and leave an imperishable trace of those fugitive melodies which the memory can no longer find when it seeks them. His invention, the phonautograph, a device which scribbled on a piece of moving paper the sound wave present. The present sound became available to the future as an image transcribed on paper, not just notation to be interpreted by a performer. Sung melodies were no longer fugitive. Memory could count on an imperishable reproduction in print. 20 years later, Another Parisian, Charles Cross, imagined a paleophone, a device to inscribe sound wave oscillations on a rotating cylinder, trumped by Thomas Edison's phonograph prototype a year later, which used wax-coated cylinder to record and play back Mary Had a Little Lamb. Everywhere that music went, a flock of recordings was sure to follow. <laughs> Now music, beautified time, could live beyond a moment, place, source of creation, transforming any future moment desired with captured sonic sculptures. Music recorded on wax cylinders was sold commercially, and forevermore, musicians referred to recording as making wax. An early version of commercial cylinder recordings was sold in cans, coining the phrase canned music. Early record players were sold in furniture stores and moved records into most households by 1920. 30 million records were sold in 1910 alone. Subsequent technology employing electrons for microphones and speakers, magnetic particles for audio tape, radio waves for wireless transmission, laser beams for compact discs, and silicon circuits for iPods, iPads, iPhones, merely modified the convenience, length, fidelity, fungibility of recorded reproductions. How long is music on recordings these days? Well, according to the website Big Time Musicians, the average length of a pop song is three and a half minutes. Rap, just under four. Rock, four and a quarter. R&B, just over four and a half. So soft-boiled eggs and hard rock have time in common. <laughs> but what makes music, some music feel better? In the case of jazz, it is a matter of subtle timing, a slight delay in synchronization between musicians. 
people report that the small delay makes music swing harder. The exact amount of time? A theoretical physicist named Theo Geisel collected data that points to 30 milliseconds. Just that little shift changes the sound from mechanical to human, from stiff to soulful, from tight to right. The drummer's right hand stick on the wide ride cymbal splang dangling links the low bass thump from fingers pulling gut strings, setting a rock steady beat hipper than any metronome. The other musicians hold back their notes to challenge the beat, weave awake, surprise the sound. Jazz synchronizes a handful of musicians, but how can a whole orchestra traverse time together? The baton is not a mechanical device like a second hand on a watch, but it can shepherd a large flock of musicians forward through a score, a magic wand that points, parries, and pirouettes. I recalled a conducting masterclass held one morning at Carnegie Hall by French conductor Pierre Boulez. In the darkened theater, dotted with conductors, scores for La Mer by French composer Claude Debussy open on their laps, a young conductor lifted his baton in front of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Down it came for beat one and snapped to the right for beat two. The opening strain of musical depiction of the ocean oozed into the air. Stop, cried Boulez. The baton slowly sank to the stop beside the student's leg. The sea of sound ceased. You must give the orchestra the first beat, then wait. A silence filled the hall. Wait until the orchestra gives you back the sound of the first beat. Then you can give them the second beat. Soft clicking of bows on music stands signaled approval of the assembled performers. Watch. Boulez traded places with the student on the podium. With no baton, Boulez lifted his hand into the air. Musicians raised their instruments to playing position. Boulez's right hand came down and bounced slightly. A moment later, the orchestra swelled. Boulez lifted his hand and down it came again. The musical sea rose, li waves lifting waves. Then Boulez waved his hand, silencing the sound. Lesson delivered, Boulez sensed an opportunity for deeper insight. He lifted his bare hands and began to sing. His hands floating, undulating, splashing, became the oceanic music while his voice sang the orchestral parts using solfege, French syllables for each pitch in the musical score. French music, French conductor, French vocal syllables, voila. There is an Italian word important for orchestral synchronization, rubato, or robbed, literally stealing a little time from this or that beat and giving a bit more to another. The music stretches and shrinks over a steady pulse to add emotional color at the minute level of feelings below the conscious mind, subtle indeed. These issues of timing control performance in the present, but what are recordings made to capture these subtleties? Recordings of feelings in sound. I remembered a visit to San Francisco. While ordering coffee in a Haight-Ashbury cafe, a recording of rhythmic acoustic guitar beckoned in the background, part samba, part sex. 
part bossa nova. Smooth, serene, seductive. Soon, a male voice singing Portuguese entered, João Gilberto, like a hum, a hymn, hypnotic. To even say his name required my mouth to not trust my eyes and find a new dance. The opening consonant J sounds like like Jaja Gabor or the OAO form a diphthong, kind of like ow with a swallowed ending. The G has the same Jaja sound as the J, then Ilberto with a swallowed rolled R that sounds like a hint of an H. Just like music, the look on the page misses the feeling of the sound. I could not translate the Portuguese lyric, but the timing of the words tickled my ears. The words ran way ahead of the guitar accompaniment, phrases ending early, leaving room for the ticking time of the guitar, and it sounded so deliciously good. Normally, anticipation of the beat creates tension and anxiety, but Gilberto's timing did the opposite, like a trick where the barbell is a balloon. Mastery becomes mystery. The feeling was weightlessness, floating, carefree, hopeful with a knowing wink. I realized that timing was everything, a magic portal to the palette of people's feelings. I had to have the recording. The barista showed me the CD, a self-titled reissue. I immediately sought a store and purchased a copy so I could have physical proof that alchemy was real. I could enter that feeling on demand. Just press play. <sighs> but what of music recorded and not commercialized? Uh, jam bands Grateful Dead and Fish have legions of followers who record their improvised performances and barter bootlegs like rare baseball cards. The bands create a community of caring curators. But not all musicians have large audiences, especially jazz musicians like me. And not all recordings are shared widely. For example, a Seattle saxophonist, Joe Brazil, recorded live performances in nightclubs so he could study and learn. Jim Knapp, a Seattle composer, recorded performances of his work to document his oeuvre. Jim Wilkie, a Seattle radio broadcaster of live music, recorded what he aired to review the success or shortcomings of his microphone placement. These recordings made for personal and artistic reasons, are a physical artifact of a life in music, jazz in particular, Seattle specifically. They are lightning in a bottle, group improvisation caught on tape or computer, but without an interested descendant headed for the landfill because they take up too much space in a dark basement. This music, this beautified time may be stopped in silence forever. There are gems from these Doom collections. They've been polished and published, have already won worldwide acclaim and awards. John Coltrane, A Love Supreme Live in Seattle, Ahmed Jamal, Emerald City Nights, Cannonball Adderley, Swinging in Seattle, and several more. What more can be mined and minted? What else can be heard and heralded? What lessons could be learned? I want these messages from the past to find a home like this place, a place to survive, to last long into the future, a living room to share their stories with us, their neighbors, nieces, nephews, now and into the next generation, at an address where this local music took its first steps and later ran full throttle out into the world, Jackson Street. 
a historic trunk of tolerance connecting the roots of Seattle, a waterfront landing known as Little Crossing Over Place by the indigenous Duwamish tribe, renamed Pioneer Square by the colonizers, to branches of the city's non-white residents, Asian, Pacific Islander, Jewish, Black, musical pioneers like Jelly Roll Morton, Ray Charles, and Quincy Jones composed, improvised, and nourished themselves here because the rest of booming white Seattle kept them out. Music, beautified time, could be preserved. Necessary noise for the next of us. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Ayesha Ubiadelica, and Steve DeTori. Our theme music is by Brian Smith, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2023 curator of this program is Priscilla Long, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture, Washington State Arts Commission, the U District Partnership, National Endowment for the Arts, Rainier Institute and Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org.